All right, like Jared said, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And like he said, we're making our way through this, uh, this sermon that Jesus gave, probably the most famous sermon ever taught. And he's teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. And think about his, his audience, of course, was mostly Jewish people from the, the Galilee region where he was preaching. And they had already, he had already been preaching and teaching, and they had already been following his ministry. In chapter 4, verse 23, it says that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And throughout the gospel accounts, we see the phrase that Jesus was preaching the gospel. And I always thought that's kind of interesting because when, as Christians, having the whole book in front of us, when we think about the gospel, we think the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, believing by faith, none of that had happened yet. So what was he preaching? Obviously, there were some times where he, he hinted at or he flat out told them, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be uh, killed and rise again. But in this sermon that we have been given, um, we see what that message was. What did it mean when it said that he was preaching the gospel? And it was that he was teaching the good news, which is what gospel is, about the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so, one thing that Jared uh, mentioned in the last couple weeks was that this Sermon on the Mount is almost like a manifesto of sorts, a telling of what he's about. What's this kingdom that he's talking about? And it really is that story, the story of what's the, what is the kingdom of heaven really is good news. And that's what gospel means. It means good news. And it's, give, it gives us hope, right? It gives us Hope of joining a kingdom that is going to last forever, a home that's ruled by goodness where God is king. And so we can have that kingdom of heaven, and that's the good news. That's the gospel that he is sharing. So um, let's pray before we uh, dive in and just see what, uh, what Jesus will teach us as we keep on uh, studying through the Sermon on the Mount. So um, Lord, we thank you that we can be together this morning, and thank you that you've given us your word, uh, and that it's been preserved for us, that you spoke there on a hillside in Israel nearly 2,000 years ago, and we get to read it today. Um, Lord, we pray that you would illuminate this scripture for our minds um, Lord, I pray that you'd give me the gifts I need to communicate, to recall what you've been teaching me as I've been preparing to share this message, Lord. And um, Lord, may we all understand together more deeply the message that you taught and understand more about what, what is this kingdom that you have invited us to be part of. Lord, may we be changed by what you taught, and Lord, please empower us to live in it and to walk in it. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we read a little bit more, I know I've uh, been kind of giving introduction, but 
what I'd like to do is back up and start in verse 17 and read through verse 20, just to kind of give us a little bit of context of what we're about to see in the following verses. So starting in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. And just, to, I'd like to kind of um, set the table before we uh, continue and read verses 21 through 37. And part of that is because um, there's a lot here. And for me, I, I had the opportunity, not that we didn't all have this opportunity, but I got to spend a lot of time reading this dozens of times, chewing on it. And since we, right now, what I'd kind of like to do is point out some things at, so that as we read it, you can notice things right off the bat that took, that, you know, I read it many times before I noticed. And, um, and j- so you'll, you can see that as we read through it. So first of all, I'll just say that, notice that verse 20 is kind of like a thesis or a heading for what we're about to read, that verse that we just read, verse 20. And then there's a pattern of, verses, of the verses that follow. You're going to hear Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you. And through verses 21 through 48, he does that six times, and we're going to look at the first um, four of them today. And he, he says, he doesn't say it is written, he says, you have heard that it was said. Meaning he's not just addressing the text of the Old Testament or the law, but he's actually speaking to also their interpretations and their expounding upon it. And the Pharisees were known to, well, and the Jewish tradition in general is known to, uh, you know, even we have the, the, the adjective, the word, you know, a Talmudic, right? Just to kind of extract and extract from, from the teaching and get a new, a new law and a new law and a new law. And, and, and so the Pharisees were known for this and Jesus uh, bumped up against them many times throughout the Gospels. But what he says here is that he's going to show us oh, the Pharisees seem to take it so far. Well, I'm, I'm telling you that when it comes to righteousness, they didn't take it, they didn't take it far enough. The, they, you think that it's righteous, but they didn't, they didn't even take it far enough. And so uh, as we read through these things, it, it is clearly a list like a new set of commandments. And we could read that like Jesus is explaining the ethics, the morality of the kingdom of heaven. But more than that, everything that he says is pointing back to verse 20. And he's saying, these are supporting points for what I have just said. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so it's possible for us to read this, these, this teaching and receive it in exactly the wrong way, to do it, to go back to doing it the way the Pharisees did and think, aha, I see, okay, checklist, uh, steps one, two, three, this is how I achieve righteousness. I need to be righteous, and Jesus is telling me, this is how I achieve righteousness, but that's not what he's saying at all. And so he says things that are intended to shock us and help us to stop looking at things from that human perspective to show us the impossibility of that way of thinking and the way of thinking of the Pharisees and to realign our, our thoughts in the way of heaven. So that's, I think, what we see uh, here starting in verse 20 was that, that shock that he is giving uh, and how that would come off, and we'll get more into that later. So um, <clears throat> maybe I'm not explaining it well. I have a quote here that I thought uh, Ill, that, that kind of helped explain from, from John, something John Corson said uh, in his uh, commentary on the New Testament. He says, The Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most misunderstood passage in all Scripture, is meant first to bring us to the realization that there is no way anyone can keep its lofty standards. It is meant to make everyone equally guilty. It is meant to drive us to Jesus. And once it has driven us to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount directs us in Christ, causing us to pray, Lord, I thank you that your blood has cleansed me when I have failed, but the standard is now before me. Help me to live in your kingdom mentality, in poverty of spirit and purity of heart, in mourning and meekness and mercy through your strength, for I have a long way to go. And so first we see the commands that Jesus will give us, and that helps us to understand the point, the larger point that he was making. And at that time, then we can properly understand what he meant by his commands that he is giving us. So with that exhausting uh, preface, let's go ahead and begin to uh, read uh, our, our passage this morning. And we'll, we'll, also, we'll start with verse 20 again. So, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. <clears throat> and whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. <clears throat> and if your right hand causes you to sin, 
Cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And so there's three things that I would like to go through just by way of outline for this morning. And first is that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness. And so we'll take a look at Jesus' teaching here, see what he, it says about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And not only is it a kingdom of righteousness, but the, that righteousness goes far beyond any human understanding or concept of what it means to be righteous. And the next thing we'll look at is, follows from the first, which is that we fall short of the righteousness of God's kingdom. And when we understand this, this is how we become the poor in spirit. You'll recall in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began with the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then lastly, we see that Jesus is calling us to live the way of the kingdom. He wants to get the kingdom into us. And if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it must first enter us. So let's start with the first point here. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness. So through these, uh, this teaching of Jesus, what is he teaching us about the kingdom? <clears throat> and so, again, I just like to, I like to do this when I'm uh, reading the scriptures, especially when it's a, like a sermon like this from Jesus. I like to imagine the setting that they're in. Imagine who's there, where they are. And so you can picture, you know, Jesus is preaching on a hillside. It's called a mountain in the Bible. We would call it a, a probably a hillside. And the Sea of Galilee is nearby, and the people who are listening to him are Jews, mostly, I'm sure. Uh, there may have been others, but mostly these are the, the people of Israel. And they're living in this land. He's teaching from the land of Israel that God had promised to Abraham many, many years, thousands of years prior. And where God, through Joshua, had led them to conquer the land and settle it and make it their kingdom. And they became a nation and they only lasted, after they had judges, they only lasted two kings and became a nation divided and then they were exiled. And now they're back living in the land that is the kingdom that God gave them, but they're under the rule of another kingdom. They're under the rule, the oppressive rule of Rome. And so when Jesus is speaking about a kingdom, we think about what that means to the people there. We don't think in terms of kingdoms as much, but they 
would immediately, they would be thinking of their kingdom. They're living under another kingdom under Rome. And now Jesus is speaking about a kingdom of heaven. And I think that uh, nothing would quite make someone long for a kingdom of heaven more than uh, subjugation on earth, being conquered or enslaved. People who are in those conditions more than anyone else would be longing for this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is telling them about. And so even for us, we experience the trials, the troubles of life, and we think of the kingdom of heaven and what that would mean to us. Um, even if, you know, if we had, were hearing that today, this message, we would be thinking, that sounds like a place of peace, a, king, a kingdom that has a king that's just and holy, and it's a thing I want. I want that. And when these people were listening, the kingdom of heaven, I want that. And, and what is the first thing that Jesus tells them, right, in our passage here, verse 20? It's, it's bad news. So in, look again, chapter 5, verse 20. I've, re- I've already said it a few times, but I'm just going to keep on going back to this. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's this great news that I'm telling you about a kingdom, but that would have gotten their attention, right? Unless your uh, righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it sounds like, okay, well, there's no hope then, right? And, And Jesus has this pattern or this way of teaching, saying things to really get people's attention. And we don't get to see the feedback here. There's other places where we get to see the feedback from the the people listening. When Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for um, a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of God. And it says in Matthew 10, 26, they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, well, who then can be saved? It sounds like Jesus is teaching, no one can be saved. And that's probably what would have been going through their minds here. There was no, uh, no doubt some murmuring in the crowd as Jesus says, these guys, the Pharisees that, that, uh, that you know of, that, uh, whose reputation is about holiness and following the law, you need to be more righteous than them if you want to be able to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And then in verse 48, at the end of this section, he ends it with a bookend of another statement like that where he says, be, I'll read this from the King James, right? Okay. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which, in, which is in heaven is perfect. So he's giving them these seemingly inconceivable uh, points saying that they need to be perfect like, like God in heaven is perfect. And it's possible that even just the nature, that radical teaching is even what attracted some people. What this guy's saying, some crazy stuff out here. But what he's saying is true, even though it might not be true in the way that they were thinking and the way they were hearing it. And it's easy to immediately get into, oh, what does this mean for our lives? But first we just are considering what does it mean about heaven? Because uh, all throughout the Gospels, I counted 53 times where Jesus referred to the kingdom of God, 31 times where he uh, speaks of the kingdom of heaven, 
this is a topic that was very important to him and that he was trying to convey to us an understanding of a place that we can't understand using the means that we could, can understand. So sometimes that sounds like, that, that, that is statements like, be perfect like God the Father is perfect. But first, you know, he hits, he, he refers to the Pharisees. Later in Matthew, in chapter 23, it's like an entire chapter dedicated to just ripping these guys for their hypocrisy. But that's not what the Jews of the time would have seen. Uh, what they would have seen was an uh, you know, Olympic-level efforts of keeping the law, of following to the finest detail um, the, the, the commandments of, of God. You know, it said that there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees were, were giving it their best. They were trying so hard to hit all 613. And I think Jesus is saying, oh, when you think of righteousness, you think of following the law. And when you think of following the law, you think of the Pharisees. And those guys, they don't follow it enough. And like I said before, the Pharisees have this, the, the, these other layers of traditions. And Jesus is saying, um, I'm, he's addressing even their traditions and saying, no, you need to go even further than their traditions if you're trying to build your righteousness based on following the law. In fact, if you're trying to build your righteousness at all, you're going to fail. And if you're trying to build your righteousness, you're going to have to do even better than the people that you see doing the best. In fact, it's going to, going to need to be perfect. So let's look at a couple examples from our, our text here. Look first at verse, verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So this is from the Ten Commandments. And if they murdered, they would have to go in front of a human court for murder. But then verse 22, I say to you, Jesus is now taking it even further, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And the word council there is the word San, Sanhedrin, which was their governing rulers. And, and part of this is now this, first was the Ten Commandments, murder. Now Jesus is talking about if you say Raka, or if you uh, defame someone, you could be called before the court. And this was part of their, this was part of their understanding. This was, this was something they would have known, that if you defame or you um, speak badly about somebody's um, character, you can be called before the court for slander. But now Jesus takes it even further and says, if you have the, uh, he says, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And the word for fool there is the word moros, from which we get the word moron. So we, we see that we're having a downward scale of the uh, infractions, right? We started with murder, and now we ended with, you called someone a moron. And we went from, you're going to go to court, to you're going to be in danger of the fires of, the word there for, that is translated hell is Gehenna. 
So he's telling us something that we already should have known or that they already could have known from the Old Testament, which is the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks at the heart. Next, look at another, the other example, one, one of the other examples that Jesus gives here in verses 27 and 28. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he started off here with murder, adultery. He's hitting the biggest, the things that people would think of as the biggest sins. And he's targeting the fact that there's an outward action, but it starts with a thought or an act of the heart. And I would say that if we're honest with ourselves, um, even though most of us have heard this teaching and we've known that Jesus taught this, it's, it's difficult to truly accept this and to really accept that um, lust is already to have committed the act of adultery or that to be angry at someone without cause puts us at just as much risk of judgment as murder. We, we acknowledge that it's true. We've heard the teaching. We've heard the Sermon on the Mount. But <clears throat> to really internalize it, I mean, if you think about our own feelings on it. If we base it on our feelings, we wouldn't, we wouldn't accept this. We'd say, well, th- that's, not, that's not possible. Um, if I, uh, for example, um, I don't feel as guilty over calling somebody an idiot uh, as I would feel if I had killed them. I can't, I can't imagine actually acknowledging that that, that, that um, feeling in my heart is the same as murdering them. And I would also say that I'm uh, on, on the reverse side of that, I don't feel as upset with somebody if they call me an idiot um, as I would feel if they had killed me. Um, it kind of goes both ways. I, we, our, our feelings, our emotions don't support what he's saying. But what he's saying is not that the two are morally equivalent in, in, in the degree of their badness. What he is saying is that they are equally ineffective Avoiding them is equally ineffective in constructing our righteousness. Meaning, oh, think about what he, the conversation he had with the rich young ruler. Oh, I've kept those commands. What, he says, what, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus lists off a few of the commandments. And he's like, I got it. I, didn't, I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus is saying, Refraining from murder is no more uh, effective to construct your righteousness than being able to say you refrain from calling somebody an idiot. The fact that we have those things in our hearts are both put us um, short of that standard that he said is required if we're trying to construct righteousness. And I keep on jumping ahead to the next section when really what we're trying to focus on right here is understanding the high level of righteousness that is the kingdom of heaven. It is so pure. It is so perfect. There's no room for any of this stuff. There's no, yes, there's not room for murderers, but there's not room for you to have the hatred in your heart that leads to murder, even if you don't carry it out. There's not room for adultery in the kingdom of heaven, but there's not even room for the look that leads to adultery. And Jesus is making it clear to us that the purity of heaven can't allow, it can't allow just some anger or just a little lust. 
the effect is the same as adultery and murder. And, and you know, if you think about it, we think he's describing the kingdom of heaven. We wouldn't expect any less, right? Heaven should be a place where murder is wrong, but should anger be okay? No. Would, heaven, would we think of heaven as a place where adultery is wrong, but lust is okay? No. So Jesus, by giving us these commands, he's revealing the truth of what heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, how radically different it is than the kingdoms of earth. So there's no, there is no hate without the guilt of murder. There's no, there is no lust without the guilt of adultery. There is no um, such thing as a no-fault divorce. There is no, um, there is no breaking apart of a, a destruction of a marriage that is that can be done like what they thought here. Oh, just do it according to the law, and it's all okay. No, and there's no way to conceal our inward true feelings by putting on a happy or a holy veneer. And so we can't expect to become a citizen of a place like that while also having, carrying with us those attitudes, those emotions, those perspectives that are common here. Heaven is going to be a society that's so loving. This, this, this kingdom will be full of people that are so loving, kind, and true that there's not room to live according to the letter of the law on the outside like the Pharisees, but inward be, uh, have a heart that's full of sin. And so this, this naturally leads us into the next uh, uh, point because it sounds like a wonderful place to be, right? The, the kingdom of heaven. I, I would love to be a part of that, but um, I can't help but think about the impossibility of ever belonging there. And um, I like what Tim Keller uh, said at this point in this, uh, in studying this sermon. He says, if anybody right now is sitting there saying, I couldn't live like that, I would love to live in a world like that. It's perfectly legitimate to say people ought to be like that. We should always be loving. A failure to give positive love in any situation, Jesus says, is murder. I would love to live in a world full of people like that, but I can't be like that. And so I fall far short. What am I going to do? And as soon as you feel like that, you are feeling the law grab you by the hand and say, here, I can show you how you ought to live, but I can't give you the power to do it. You know, Charles Spurgeon says, the mirror can show you how dirty your face is, but just try washing your face in it, and the law of God is like a mirror. And so this leads us to our second point. We've seen how holy, how righteous, the, the fact that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness, and that naturally leads us over into seeing part point two, which is we fall short of the righteousness of God's kingdom. Most of us, most people, tend to want to see uh, that we're a pretty good person. What Jesus is showing us is if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, first we have to see how sinful we really are, that we're not a pretty good person. Stop, stop trying to think of ourselves and, and uh, think, look at ourselves that way. The Pharisees, the example that he's giving us here, they used their strict adherence and zeal for the law to create 
and support a positive image of themselves. And we have that same very natural human tendency to want to use the law to earn our salvation or, or to, to build up our righteousness. But the problem is we couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is telling us that we would need to exceed that if the way we were trying to get into heaven was to try to earn it. So Jesus is showing us the correct use for the law of God, the correct understanding for the law of God, which is, as um, uh, Tim Keller quoted Charles Spurgeon say, it's a mirror. It's, it's a measuring stick. It is to show us what we really are. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus criticized the Pharisees, though. He said that they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. And so we know that this is not his intent here with his teaching. So we don't want to treat what he's saying and receive it in the same way as the Pharisees would speak, which is to say, uh, the, the, here's the law of God, you can't keep it. The Pharisees are now adding another layer onto it. They can't keep that either. But let me tell you what, here's an even higher standard. Keep that. I don't think that that is what Jesus is telling us uh, since he criticized the Pharisees for trying to put that trip, put that weight on people. Again, he is actually trying to correct that wrong perspective. You know, that the, this is that perspective. From the beginning, since the book of Genesis, people have tried to construct the towers of, of their religion. Physical, literal towers in the, the, the Tower of Babel. We see the, uh, other, uh, other c- cultures and other religions throughout history have done the same thing with the ziggurats. Everyone's trying to construct their way to heaven. And now the Pharisees were trying to construct their tower with the law of God. They were trying to construct their righteousness and build a structure of their righteousness using the law. But the problem with that is that the law is not a building block. It's not a brick. It is a ruler. And you can't build anything out of a measuring stick. Or as the quote uh, from, from Spurgeon saying, a mirror, a measure, uh, something to show us what we really are. You can't build anything like that. You can't wash the sin off using that. And the, the verse that was referenced there is Galatians 3.24. And the Apostle Paul writes, the law, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so Jesus is teaching us the correct use of the law here by saying, if you're going to try to use it to build your righteousness, you're going to have to do a better job than it is possible for you to do. Let me show you. It is here to show you that you need righteousness but you cannot build it for yourself. And it shows us um, how far we fall short and helps us through these things as Jesus teaches us, gives us these commands and convicts us, convicts our heart. It helps us to not just understand, but to feel the need. And imagine, okay, we're, we're believers. We have come to the Lord. We have received him. We've got the grace. We know the whole picture, but imagine if you hadn't come to that place yet. Jesus would be leading you down to a place of absolute 
desperation. There's nothing I can do. I am going to stand before God and be accountable for everything. I, I have no hope. Another verse um, to consider here from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Or as Jesus tells us, if you do not murder, but you have been angry without a cause, or you don't commit adultery, but you have lusted, you've broken the whole law. If you've broken the law, it's broken. It has become broken, the thing as a whole. Meaning that standard, that perfect standard, the righteousness that is required to get into heaven has been broken. And it leads us back to something else that Jesus pointed out here. Twice he references Gehenna, hellfire, burning fire. And this is a literal place that they would have understood outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. What, what was going on there? It was a continual flame that was required for the purity of the city. Anything rotting, any foul refuse, dead animals, everything that needed to be burned up would be taken there, and it was always burning. And you had to keep that flame going, and it had to continue to burn in order for the city to not be poisoned by the impurities. And Jesus is saying, when we think about that, we think about the, the law. If you've broken one point, you've broken the whole thing. It, there, there is no slight poisoning of the well that is uh, tolerable, right? You can't have a, a, a mildly poisoned well. If there's poison in the well, it's poison. You can't um, have gangrene and sit on your limb and, and just decide to live with it. It will spread and kill the body. You've got, it has to be cut off. And Jesus, he's drawing their attention to that when he says, you think of fire, you think of this burning outside the city. I'm telling you, it's better to cut off the part of the body that is causing you to sin than for it to infect the whole body. There's, not, there's no just a little rot in the meat that we can tolerate. That whole carcass has to go to the fire outside the city and burn. And so it, in, likewise, in the kingdom of heaven, in our lives, there's in a righteous life, the kind of righteousness that's required for heaven, there isn't room for a little sin, just the, just the lust, but not the adultery, there, just, just the hate, but not the murder. There isn't room for that. And that's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He wants us to see how serious it is. Again, he's leading us... It, down. Thank God we've already got the whole picture here today, but he is wanting us to know how serious it is. And even as believers, understanding the grace of God, it is good for us to take it seriously, to understand. Jesus doesn't just say, well, now that I've died on the cross for your sins, it's like, it's okay. It's no big deal. 
sin is, it, it, it is an impurity. It, it is something he takes seriously. It is the thing that caused him to have to go to the cross. And he's using the hyperbole of having to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand to make that point. There's no room to allow it to fester. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about losing salvation. I don't think that Jesus is saying that would go against everything that he's teaching now because we would all be hopeless from the, from the get-go. But it is serious. And to understand our salvation properly, we have to understand how deeply we needed it. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm sure everybody knows that verse well. But Jesus' teach, Jesus's teaching here helps us to understand and to feel that the weight and the truth of that and to help us um, think of how far we really have fallen short. So here's, a, here's an uh, illustration. Um, do with it what, what you will. Uh, <laughs> if you, uh, you want to get into space, you're going to have to be in a spaceship. Now, I could give you some facts about spaceships. There's pretty low-level facts. These things are true. They might not tell the whole story, but, uh, you know, it can get off the ground. It goes over 200 miles per hour, and it, and it can go over 10,000 feet high. And so given those facts, perhaps someone who has a, uh, a crop duster plane might start thinking they'd really like to go into, into outer space. And, uh, you know, their crop duster gets off the ground. If you really push it, it can get to 10,000 feet. Right now it goes 120, but maybe if I tune up the engine just a little bit, I can get that thing going 200 miles an hour. And then my crop duster will be a spaceship. And Jesus is teaching us something like, oh, well, yes, that's what the Pharisee said. Let me give you some additional information. Yes, it needs to get off the ground. Yes, it goes over 200 miles per hour. That's because 17,000 miles per hour is faster than 200. Uh, yes, it can go over 10,000 feet high, but that's because the moon is higher than 10,000 feet above the, above the ground. No matter how much we try to do the things that we thought need to be done, you're never going to get out of the atmosphere in a crop duster. You're never going to take that plane into space, and it's never going to become a spaceship. But if you find yourself in space and alive, you will know that you're in a spaceship. And if we find ourselves in the kingdom of heaven, right, and we want to be, we are part of the kingdom of heaven, we know that we will have, that, that it must mean that somehow we have the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. If we had been trying to construct it in the way that they were, that would be the equivalent of trying to turn our little plane into a spaceship. And so, you know, Jesus is speaking to an audience who are standing on the ground thinking the Pharisees are doing pretty well, flying above their heads in their uh, crop dusters, and Jesus is trying to get the point across. They're never going to get into the heavens the, this way. And so trying to see how perfect you must keep the law as a means to enter the kingdom of heaven is like another, here's another analogy. It's like trying to ask how much money do you have to have to win a tennis match? 
no amount of money will win you a tennis match. Winning the match might get you some money, but no matter how, it's, you're asking the wrong, we, we're asking the wrong question, right? And so we've, we've properly seen that heaven is holy. It's righteous beyond what we can imagine. And now we have come to the point where we have to acknowledge our helplessness uh, before the standard of God. And look, look back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, say, I said that Jesus is kind of taking us down. Well, this is the path. This is what is leading to being the poor in spirit, to have a proper understanding of what we bring to the table and just how far short we have fallen of God's standard. That is what opens us up to becoming righteous, to obtaining the kingdom of heaven. When we truly understand this, it's, it, Paul, it's like Paul did. Paul accepted this. The apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And so um, this, this understanding of the reality of ourselves also is the key to following the command later that Jesus gives later we'll get to in chapter 7 when he says not to judge. So it affects how we see ourselves before God as well as um, before uh, in comparison to others. So having, having taken a look at those two things, let's last look at the, the last point that Jesus is calling us to live the way of the kingdom. He wants to get the kingdom into us and if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it must first enter us. So we've seen we need a righteousness that cannot be obtained by the satisfaction of the law. The, the, our righteousness does not come from keeping the law, but keeping Jesus' commands comes from the righteousness that he gives us. And so our right response to hearing the Sermon on the Mount has to be, how can I get that righteousness? Lord, show me how I can become righteous. It can't be, okay, I'll do more. I'll be better. I'll work harder. I'll give more. And it, and it definitely can't be, oh, you know, um, I'm not that bad. God, God will let me into his kingdom. Because if, if either of those were our responses, then we're not hearing what Jesus said. We didn't fully hear what he said, that we're guilty of murder, that we're guilty of the same guilt of adultery, that we're in danger of hellfire, without his righteousness. And as Christians here, we've, we've accepted this. We acknowledge, as it says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And if we want to get out from under our guilt of murder and our guilt of adultery and all the guilt we have from falling short of God's law, we must seek the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and later on, Jesus will teach us about that in chapter 6. So as, as Christians, having come to the Lord in faith, <clears throat> you know, praise God, Jesus' teaching in this sermon brings us low as it reminds us of our state before grace, but we know that we have been made righteous. So how did we get that righteousness? Going back to a verse that we read earlier, Romans 3.23, everybody knows, but look at what it says right before. is very relevant to what we're studying here in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The righteousness of God is on all who believe. That's exactly what Jesus said. You have to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. You must be, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, that's because it's the righteousness of God to all and on all who believe. Another verse from Romans. Romans is full of this teaching of grace, but one more verse, Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's Romans 4, 5. Our faith is accounted for righteousness. And as the recipients of the grace of God, having received the righteousness of Christ applied to us, while at the same time we understand how high God is, how low we are, there is no room for pride. We could never become like the Pharisees. And so our righteousness can never become a source of pride. It is the righteousness of Christ on us. And, and Jesus then, now that we have received that, now that we are part of the kingdom, we have the power and he wants us to live and walk in the way of the kingdom, to follow these commands, to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to empty ourselves of the anger that, that we might have, to empty ourselves of the lust, to acknowledge that we uh, need him every moment for those things. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21 says this, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. You're not going to to spot it on the horizon. (laughs) right? Verse 21, Nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It goes all the way through into our hearts. Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees was that everything was on the exterior And this whole teaching is showing us how much that cannot be true. It must penetrate all the way into our hearts. There's no room, there's no possibility of trying to use a facade of godliness or religiosity. It makes me think of tiles. You know, there are tiles that um, that are the same color all the way through. And then there's tiles like these cheap tiles that we have in our house that something falls, it chips it, and you just see the color of the clay underneath. And, and we are to be like the, those through color, solid color tiles where we get chipped or dented or whatever, it's the same all the way through. You know, there's not, um, um, we, we can't compartmentalize our life, right? There's not a, a different way of doing it uh, at church versus at, at, uh, at home. So um, in verse, verses 23 through 26, Jesus, uh, and I, I know I'm running out of my time, but I don't want to skip over this. Uh, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then jumping down to verse 33, he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so we see that we can't compartmentalize our life like the Pharisees did. We can't say, over here is where I relate to God, I'm doing great, I worship him, um, I give and I do good works, uh, but over here is this other part, I've got this real issue with my brother, or, I, uh, or he has something against me. Jesus says the righteousness has to go all the way through. If, and if we have to say, oh, I swear, I, I, you know, then what that shows about us is that there's, there's two sides of us, right? There's, there, there's um, an inconsistency, and Jesus is saying it should not be so in his kingdom. The righteousness should go all the way through, down to the heart. And um, there's a, there should be an integrity and an inconsistency about our life. We don't just refrain from murder but seethe with hatred or refrain from adultery while letting our mind must lust and covet. We don't bring our sacrifice to the altar or come here and raise our hands in worship while at home or at work we, we know that someone has something against us. We don't say praise the Lord at church and be full of faith but then um, at home be full of, of doubt and fears and lacking trust. We, we, have to, we understand that the sins in our heart poison our spirit just like the outward actions do. So how can you tell if you're living in God's kingdom and you have the kingdom in you? Well, one way to tell is to ask yourself if there are multiple versions of you. Are you the same person whomever you're with or are you compartmentalizing? Does your yes sometimes mean yes, but sometimes you have to clarify with an, with an oath? And so when we hear that, we can easily fall back, and I'm almost done. We can fall back and say, oh, no, I'm, fa- I'm failing on these things. I'd better get my act together. No, that's not what we do. We must seek the righteousness of God. It is his righteousness in us that works those things out of us. Don't fall into the old habit or the old way of thinking that you can tune up that crop duster and turn it into a spaceship. These commands are from the Lord. They are the ethics, the morals of heaven. These are the things he requires of us, but these are not our tools to build our tower of our righteousness. Instead, we need the righteousness of Christ in us in order to follow them. So if you feel that uh, reflecting on this, that there is a failing, the answer is not do better, work harder, Try, you know, give more. It is come back by faith to the one who can give you his righteousness. So um, to, in conclusion, I, I just want to say, you know, to the Christians, I think all of us here, or most of us anyway, God is reminding you what kingdom you belong to. You have a high calling. The standards of the kingdom of heaven are so high Unrighteousness has no place there, and there is no acceptable amount of sin that we can allow to remain and fester. But if anyone here is not a follower of Jesus, you've just heard how radical Jesus' teaching is. And I want to say to you, sin infects everyone. I have it, you have it, and there's no place for it in heaven. Jesus showed all of us how far we fall short of God's requirements And if you don't come to him and receive his righteousness, you'll be accountable for all of it. The warning Jesus gave about the fire was serious and severe. It's a dire warning. 
But the good news is if we repent, acknowledge the reality of our sin and how sinful we are, we come to Jesus asking in faith for his righteousness, then his death on the cross is that substitution. So I encourage anybody who needs to receive that salvation that as we pray and as we close in worship to go to the prayer uh, in the back, um, the prayer counselors in the back and, and share that. But also just want to encourage everyone uh, to come up, take communion, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made by his body and blood. The worship team, or Julian and Mary, can, can come back up. And just as we uh, pray um, and as we worship, anybody who needs prayer, please go receive that prayer. That's an underutilized ministry. It's not, not just for anybody who wants to uh, receive salvation and pray uh, to receive that forgiveness, but anyone who needs prayer at all, I encourage you, please go get prayer in the back. And um, yeah, so let's let's go ahead and pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you for the teaching of your son, Jesus. Um, thank you for giving us the Sermon on the Mount that we can learn about what the kingdom of heaven is like. We praise you for your grace, Lord. We can't do it. We couldn't make it. And we understand that so clearly by this sermon. But thank you that the teaching about the kingdom of heaven is really a teaching of hope, not of hopelessness that we can't make it. It's of hope that you, your righteousness is available to us. And Lord, we thank you that we get to be part of your kingdom and part of your family. So um, Lord, I pray that if there is anybody who is hearing you uh, sensing, you're tugging on their heart and you're speaking to them and you're showing them through this passage through this sermon through your teaching how great their need is and how impossible it is for them to ever earn or deserve or get out of the situation of of being accountable for their guilt lord i pray that they would have the courage lord you'd give them the courage call them by your spirit don't let them escape lord give them the courage though to come back to go back lord to get prayer to receive that and lord for all of us who know you who have already done that who Say amen to this, Lord. Thank you that you have removed our shame. All these things would be things that would put us under shame, but you have removed our shame and you have made us righteous and you've given us your kingdom. And Lord, help us to walk in it and to uh, receive the power of your spirit to live in the kingdom of heaven. And we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.